Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. The Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Yanni, before we start, can you uh, re-tell me what you were saying earlier as a version of saying something's real big? Oh, Tron. Yeah. I had a fellow tell me, he, he called, he wished us good luck. We're turkey, turkey hunting, hunting. But we're going to be turkey hunting with him. Yes. He's excited but about But he it. was in an earlier he, email. Not, he, bef- not that he's excited about with us, but he's excited about Turkey. No, he definitely there. wasn't excited about going with us because he's serious about it and he didn't want to be fiddle farting with us when he's out there trying to kill his Missouri bird. So he does, we're not going to hunt with him. We may or may not, but he might already have one you know, down by the time we get there because we're coming in for day three of the season. So these guys are going to have two days start the season anyways he was wishing us good luck and he was saying in an email hey if i can't you know if this doesn't work out good luck killing a missouri gobbletron yeah and i (laughs) but i hadn't heard that i don't like it not to disparage not to besmirch or disparage the guy but like i don't like that because i just think of robots a tron to add tron on the end yeah, and like may, maybe, like maybe a big, it's like AI turkey, so it's smarter than the regular turkey. Maybe that's what he's getting at, right? Like like robotic, like artificial intelligence. Maybe he's even smarter than the average turkey. Because where I don't, where I stopped, especially stopped liking it, is when you said it's similar to saying something's mondo mm-hmm. or a toad. Yeah. What do you? Think? We could go around if, the room. If someone said to you, Dan, if they were like, "Hey, man, uh, Gobbletron." I would Good have luck killing Gobbletron. <laughs> would you be like, uh, what does that mean? Or you have an idea? Huh? I would be like, what? 
Yeah. <laughs> do you, like, do you mean something that's mondo or something that's real shy? Mondo isn't even a word. We were hanging out with a guy who runs, he's a houndsman, <laughs> and he had been doing a lot of work down in Mexico on research projects. So I thought that we would see a track and he'd be like, that's a Mondo track. And I thought it was a Spanish word. So I right away like that and I start picking up and then in my head, everything as big as Mondo. <laughs> but isn't, isn't that a system for shoe sizes too though? Mondo? Isn't it? Oh, that's not what he Well, meant. Webster says definition of Mondo, adverb, slang, extremely. Huh. That's what I thought. So I thought that he was, well, not that. I thought, he was, I thought he was speaking in Spanish. And I'm like, if there's a Spanish word that means a giant freaking track, I'm on that word. So I adopted before I even really cleared what he's saying. Then later I'm like, hey, man, what does uh, Mondo translate to? And he looks at me like, what do you mean? And he goes, it's not Mondo, it's Mongo. You know, humongous. So that's what a Mondo track is. Oh, you're right. So the whole time he was just saying Mongo. Yeah, but we like ran with it, and we're like, Mondo is the way to go. Because I use Toad, Pig, Biggin, Big Huge, Giant. Great Biggin. Great Biggin. Bruiser. Pig. Hog. Stomper. Tron. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I wanted to touch on that. Now, uh, one other quick order, but Dirt... uh, Myth is joining us here, and, and Dirt, you, you know, more people have been writing in about your, your chewing tobacco problem. Do you care to have me give you a, a, a sum up of what, what their suggestions are? Yeah, just for other listeners struggling with addiction, too. Okay, one guy said there is <laughs> one. For the betterment of everyone. Another guy came and said to us, a guy wrote in to say that, in fact, you're wrong. And there is a chew that has no... Oh, I saw that. Yes. It's just nicotine, right? Is that what you're talking about? But it doesn't have the... Is nicotine the part that makes your jaw fall off and you die? Yeah. So that's that's, the part of it? Yeah, and I have a buddy who did that. And those things, they're speaking of like AI or like technology, a thing that is just nicotine that you put in your mouth just seems... You know what I mean? I forget what they're called. Yeah. But I tried them. It didn't help. No, I mean, you catch your buzz, but, you know, old habits. You still catch a nice little buzz. Yeah, yeah. But I did see that. I think you shared that with me or someone Instagrammed it to me or something. You know, Bryce and Joe, who we were just ice fishing with. <laughs> They're double I, downers. Well, they chew grizzly. And I so saw. you put me in an uncomfortable situation <laughs> because one day I was asking you, what kind of chew do you say? And you said, I have a good job. I don't chew Grizz. (laughs) I chew Copenhagen. So I saw that they had Grizz, and so knowing that you had told me this, and I put a lot of faith in what you tell me, I said, oh, it's too bad you boys don't have good jobs. (laughs) And it didn't go over real well. (laughs) Well, no one wants to hear the truth, (laughs) you know, sometimes. (laughs) And then Steve pointed out to them (laughs) that although you have a good job, you're going to live out of your truck for a little bit. Yeah. yeah, well, that's what someone else pointed out. Maybe like, my he, can't, t- he can't have that good of a job if he lives in his truck. <laughs> well, you know, if he lives at, if he lives at trailheads, if he's like a weird, like when you go to a trailhead, there's a weird guy living there. That's don't make dirt. eye contact with him. It's probably dirt. <laughs> if he's got a tin of cope, then you know it's him. Saving the saving the rent for chew and adventures. 
All right, before we move on to what we're here to talk about, I want to just get, I want to find out how much dirt's going to get out of this conversation. So name for me, if you can, the five species of Pacific salmon. Okay. That we, that, 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 that come to, that, that inhabit U.S. waters. The layman's name or the, uh. Layman. Okay. Common name. Yeah. Silver. Yep. Chum. Yep. Sockeye. Yep. Pink. Yep. Oh, man. Biggins. <laughs> oh. Biggins. Oh, King. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Nice job. Yeah. Now, name the one in the Atlantic. I gave you the answer. When? <laughs> <laughs> the Biggins salmon? Nope. Nope. I gave you the answer after that. It was buried within the question. It was like the other day when my daughter said to me, what's 1,002? Meaning what happens when you add 1,002? And I was like, you just said it. What salmon lives in the Atlantic? Is this the question you posed to me in the start? Because I was thinking of you when you started the question. No. Okay. I'm giving you the answer. Okay. What salmon lives in the Atlantic? Oh, Atlantic salmon. Yes. (laughs) So we got Yeah. Yeah, no, no, we're good. So, Dan, so that, that's Dirt Myth, and then, and then um, Janice Poodleus is here, and then we're also <laughs> speaking to my brother, Danny, who I mention all the time whenever fish comes up, because uh, fish biologists, fisheries, what do you like to say? Fish biologist, fisheries biologist. But, but that involves a lot more than fish. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, yeah, my, my, the current job title I'm working under is a fisheries biologist but um yeah my background is pretty as well-rounded in aquatic ecology and um yeah i've done work with a lot of work with habitat and aquatic insects and food webs and that sort of stuff so didn't it come up that your first like your first kind of work was around aquatic invertebrates yeah that was kind of my path into fish but yeah i got really interested in them as an undergrad uh, working on a fish fisheries degree and um yeah, the first part of my career was spent entirely on aquatic insects. I'm I'm still fascinated with them, but uh, you know, yeah, now it's mostly just through the avenue of them being fish food. Yeah. If you were going to like what percentage of your time do you spend thinking about and talking about um issues having to do with salmon? It's most of my time, most of my professional time. And why is that? I mean, one, you like them, but is it because uh, there's an industry around it and so there's money to support it? I mean, that, that's, that's certainly part of it, but, I mean, you have to do work that people care about. And, you know, when you're, when you're working in Alaska, and, I, and I'm a freshwater biologist, I don't really, you know, operate on the marine end of things. Um, you know, in terms of Alaskan freshwaters, it's just, a, you can't, overstate the importance of salmon you know culturally economically ecologically they're just incredible they define alaska yeah and you like to fish them too oh i love to fish them yes yeah it's some one of my favorite things in the world yeah and the as dirt pointed out so eloquently there are um five species of salmon on the pacific coast of the u.s and all five occur in Alaska. Yes. Yep. Run through real quick what the five Pacific salmon are with like a kind of a basic sense of like what their groove is. 
Okay, yeah, just in terms of how they... And then what's up with the Atlantic salmon? Why is there only one over there? <laughs> um, so the, the five Pacific salmon, um, we have the pink or the humpy salmon. Um, yeah, that's good too because every salmon has two names. As, which is totally, it's like weird it, that it's it, that way. Isn't yeah. there one that has more? Oh, because there are, there are different names, you know, down in the Northwest. I mean, you know, they're like Chinook salmon. They have different names in British Columbia, Washington. They have a million names, but. Um, so pinks and humpies. Within Alaska, each has two that are sort of in common usage. Yeah. So pinks and humpies. And um, they are the smallest and most common of the salmon. And uh, they they have a sort of a. That's the most common salmon numerically. Yeah, most numerically abundant of the salmon. Um, they're just everywhere. When the pink salmon run, you've been seen them in the you know when you're around the small coastal streams like down around the fish shack or even up in here. But yeah, when the when the humpies are in, they're in thick, you know, and there's just thousands of them everywhere you go, and the, the whole place stinks like <laughs> dead salmon. And they're, yeah, they're just incredibly abundant. Um, so they, yeah, they have a short life history. Every pink salmon that re, that 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 is uh, spawning in a creek is two years old. It was laid as an egg two years prior to that. Um, so, and that's just that's set in stone. Pretty much, yeah. It's yeah. So so when you have a a, a river that has uh, a pink salmon run that returns in odd years, and a pink salmon run that returns in even years, those are two completely separate populations of pink salmon, both with their own separate population dynamics and. So one of those could plummet for whatever reason. Oh yeah, it's incredibly lopsided in some places. Like the, and I can't remember if it's odd or even, but like the Fraser River down in, down in British Columbia, in in one year it gets you know millions and millions of pink salmon, and then the next year it gets essentially none, and it just alternates every year like that. So odd year, even year, you know it's going to be good or not good. Yeah, yeah, and that shifts and depending on like geography, and and over long time spans, it probably shifts. You know, within an area, an area might turn from a pink to a or from an odd to an even or whatever. You know, but, yeah. But some areas are pretty even, and some areas are more lopsided. But they're, pinks, they're really two separate populations. Okay, so that's pinks and humpies. What's their Latin name? Ancarancus. They're all Ancarancus. That's how you pronounce it, Ancarancus. Well, yeah, that's how I pronounce it at least. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and hump and the humpy is is a gorbushka. I think is how it's pronounced. It's Russian. It's Russian. Yes. Oh, yeah, I believe so. I believe so. Um, but but pinks are uh, life history wise. They um, the, as with all of the Pacific salmon, uh, they are spawned in the sort of late summer or fall, and the eggs incubate sort of into the winter and hatch kind of maybe late winter, early spring, and pink salmon. Uh, upon hatching and uh, they absorb the yolk and emerge from the gravel and they leave the river. They just migrate f- to fresh water right after they hatch. They don't linger. They don't linger. No. And why do pinks, like pinks don't run long distances. No, they're, they're a, lot of, they're a lot of them spawn sort of in intertidal areas and uh, low in river systems. They're just a- a- adapted using that part of the watershed. Yeah. You know, like they might run a couple hundred yards. Oh spawn. yeah, yeah. You see them spawning in intertidal areas on that freshwater lens. You know they'll migrate into the lower into the estuary, and then drop back out as the tide ebbs and flows. Yeah. And when they come out of their egg, they're right out in the ocean. Yeah. Well, they they come out of the egg and they still have a little yolk attached, right? And they once that yolk is absorbed, and then at that point their jaws are fully developed and they start feeding sort of on their own. And by that point, yeah, those pinks are just following the current. And they, I think you know they sort of are time they're hatching to 
other emergence to coincide with um, sort of the spring runoff, and they just kind of follow that down to the ocean. When those, when a salmon's eggs are laying there, like the salmon, their eggs, like take a pink for instance, his eggs don't stick to the rock. No, they're, they're just laying like in in sheltered areas out of the current between rocks. No, they're the 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 they're actually buried. I mean, the 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 female excavates the nest or the red, and the and she lays the eggs there, and they're, they're fertilized, and and then she'll back actually bury them under gravel oh, okay yeah you, you see them digging out but i didn't know that so they really cover them up mm-hmm. yeah the ones that aren't covered aren't gonna she'll dig it. a pocket and then you know scoot upstream a little bit and dig another one and that kind of falls back on the previous pocket and she sort of digs a series of these pockets and lays eggs in them and then b- buries them as she goes along got you so march along to the next well, hold thing. on so oh. where does when does the mail come in as she th- those eggs are fertilized as she's got dropping it. them really yeah they're they, you'll I mean, you, you can see it in a oh, yeah, creek. Yeah, you yeah. see them; they'll, they'll sort of, they'll sort of uh, sandwich up side by side, and they're, they're you see, that they'll open their jaws and even kind of quiver a little bit, you know, and like that's the action right there. The whole face. Yeah, but I didn't know. Like, you can even see the milk drifting down the current. Because when you see a male, like when you see a female laying, you see her like the way. No, she, that's digging. What you're that's digging. Yes. Because I was saying this the other day, like when we used to fish steelhead, you'd be staring into a place where you know steelhead hang out. Yeah. Couldn't tell if there ain't there. And you'd catch the female flash. That flashing is the digging. She's like laying She's on her side. And picture like if you put your hand on the bottom in the rocks and you lifted it up, you'd create some suction, right? And that would kind of pull the rocks up. That's, that's what she's doing with her whole body. Okay. Yeah. So I pictured it. I didn't, I didn't know this. I had in my head my whole life here that they lay the egg down and the male comes and somehow fertilizes the sitting egg. But they need to do it in tandem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's happening all at once. Can you real quick talk about, before we get back to the other ones, can you talk about when, when you, like the, the act of fertile, when you're fertile, like doing artificial insem- insemination of salmon eggs in a bucket? Uh-huh. I remember you saying one time that, that you saw where there's like a five-gallon bucket of eggs. Yeah. And someone would put in like a tablespoon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stuff shockingly potent. Yeah. A tablespoon, oh, like a squirt, of, right? Like, yeah, like a squirt of semen. Stir that bucket up with a ladle, a spoon, and be like, that bucket is fertilized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was in some, uh, uh, some little hatchery experience I had in my in my un- undergraduate days. But yeah, they would take a a bucket of salmon eggs and take a, a. They would just squirt. I think they would use a few males to make sure that they had, you know, a good viable one and a little maybe a little diversity. Um, but just a little squ- squirt of sperm from each of those fish into a big bucket of eggs, stir it up, and they're, they're good to go. Ready to roll. Yeah. Okay, march on to the next fish. Um, up in size. Let's go from smallest to most modern. Sorry, I got to interrupt. I feel like we can't leave the humpy until we talk a little bit about, like, why does he get that funny shape when he comes back in there. yeah uh, yeah we can do that but i was planning on coming back with some other mm. other issues but okay. yeah why not talk about why they call them humpies why do they call them humpy <laughs> so the humpy the humpy term refers to uh the big kind of pumped back that the male sock or male pink salmon gets during spawning and his crazy hook jaw yes yes um and so yeah those are 
secondary sexual characteristics, I guess, analogous to the ornamentation on a bird or something like that. It, they're just demonstrating their the, – the, the hump makes them look bigger and more opposing, and the hook jaw makes them look rougher and tougher, and they use that to, to display and for aggression to compete um, for females you know, with other males. So that's him getting tricked out. Getting pimped out and ready to spawn, yeah. Do you know, like, are, are you familiar with the late – um geneticist Stephen Jay Gould. Yes. A little. He had a point he made one time in one of his books I was reading where he's kind of getting at something I'm sure you deal with and talk about all the time. Would be that like we don't know why things become the way they become. And he was using an example like uh someone might look and be like, wow, bark, right? Bark is brown. What's the genetic, what's the selective advantage? of brown bark like yeah. why is it brown like what is the tree gaining from having brown bark and he would say maybe what the tree is doing is that there's an advantage to it having very thick bark something structural in that because it can resist forest fire so the advantage is the thickness of bark um as over the years it's selected for thicker and thicker bark it just so happens for for maybe perhaps no advantageous region reason at all that it's attains a certain color yeah but we look and ponder over the color thinking like why is it that way when it's just a, it, there's no reason it's that way it's like green leaves there's nothing special about that color it's just yeah the tree isn't gaining from having green leaves the or, color or, is a byproduct of some other yeah so evolutionary. But in this case it does seem like so but in this case like who like maybe some other reason like why they get a big hump and a hook jaw or is it so like obvious that it has to be well, it, that it has that because it's like a competitive selective it's so many other species have you know sort of well a breeding similar types of secondary sexual traits that come out during breeding um and you know salmon live for multiple years that th- those traits don't appear until you know, right, right at the time of spawning. I mean, yeah. And it makes sense because yeah. it's a competitive environment. He yeah. Needs to yeah. Be in there of, like, yeah. He's jockeying for favor. Yeah, exactly. And it fits with their mating structure. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And it probably takes some amount of energy to do it. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's a trade off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are fish, is it true? Can you say generally like fish are like birds where the males do a lot more ornamentation? They're flashier. Man, I'm still in the salmon world for a while. I, I, uh, but yeah, I think so. I think so. And, 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 and parental care tends to be males and ornamentation tends to be males. Um, females in that regard, it's unlike birds because the, the parental care among the fishes tends to be fall more on the males. Um, but in terms of ornamentation, yeah, I think so. And then with the salmon, are the males all bigger than the females? No, that's... A, that's I don't think so. That's a good question. I, I, I think it's the the females on average tend to be a little bigger. Tend to be a little bit heavier than the males. I think so. So when you catch a big, know that. huge king, it could be either sex. Could be either sex. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. You cool on that? I'm cool. Man, I think at, yeah, at the top end, I, I can picture some. Big males, but on average, the females might be a little bigger. They tend to live; they tend to be a little older. On what species? Uh, just salmon in general. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Well, the pinks are always coming back at two. Well, I shouldn't say that. Not pinks. The others. Yeah. The other ones. The ones we haven't got to yet. The ones we'll get into. Yeah. So what's the next one? Um, Let's just (laughs) moving up the. uh, So, I mean, you can think of pink salmon (laughs) as being, you know, quite marine. Right. Right. Because they they um, spend relatively little time in freshwater. Um, And so chum salmon have sort of a similar life history in that they. Home, that's a good observation. They don't spend, like, they have to have the fresh water, but they just don't spend any time there. They only use it for breeding. Yeah, I mean, as soon as that, um, as soon as the uh, fry emerges from the gravel, like, they can handle salt water right away, um, which, you know, the other salmon sort of have a more involved transformation, and they, yeah, they're out of there, yeah. So he's dead at, they all die when they're two. Mm Mm-hmm. And he could have spent a week in freshwater. As a free-swimming fish, As yes. a free-swimming fish. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, ch- chum salmon um, have a somewhat similar life history in that they go to sea soon after emerging from the gravel. Um, a, a lot of chum salmon are also spawned sort of coastally low in the watershed, but there are but there are some some chum salmon populations like the Yukon River uh, in Alaska, for example, where chum salmon move a, a really long way up rivers. Um, you didn't say the two names for chums. Chum salmon and dog salmon would be the two. I'm sure there are others, but those are the two that are in common usage in Alaska. Um, where they deviate from pink salmon is that chum salmon um will sp- can spend multiple years rearing in fresh water um i think multiple two- years i'm sorry in salt water in salt water okay so they they they, they leave fresh water soon after emerging um in the typically in the spring of the year and they can spend multiple years at sea i think two and three years is pretty common for them so with pinks when you i want to go step back to pinks for a minute because when pinks, like, if you catch a big male yeah. or, or big whatever, you catch a big specimen who's, like, obviously bigger than the other ones, there's nothing. He's not, not older. He's not because he's older. He went to a better place in the ocean. Yeah, or he's just, you know, there's a lot of variation and sort of aggressiveness, tolerance for risk, and those sorts of things over the span of two years can result in fish of different sizes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a chum can choose to stay another year. Yeah, and they that's... a that's a good way to put it because it sort of is a, a decision that they make um, every year when they're rearing in the ocean. Basically, they decide, well, am I going to spawn this year or am I going to wait another year? What is that like? Um, you, I know we're using decision, but what does that look like? <sighs> you know, it, it, it seems to be related to the, the foraging conditions and how rapidly they're growing. Um, and if they are... It, when that decision window comes, if they're if they're if they're in good condition and growing rapidly, they're more inclined to spawn at a younger age. So, so sort of paradoxically, like you know, for a given species, a bigger salmon tends to be an older salmon, and it was one that was sort of growing at a slower rate, and it took longer to get big. When does that? So when does that like um, that trigger or decision happen for a salmon? Oh, oh, it's or is that uh, is that not well understood? Oh, you know, it's not really my area. Uh, I, I mean, I, but I can speculate that you know, probably late winter, springtime. You know, 
you know they're out, they're out in the Pacific somewhere, and 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 it, it's it's either time to turn and start heading home or not, you know. And so they and need to, to have make, your body start like making the eggs. Yeah, exactly. To mature sexually, and yeah, exactly. So the, you know, so they need to leave, allow some time for that. So it's not a you know not a last minute sort of game time decision. Yeah, yeah, because you're you're like takes months to develop them. Yeah, exactly. You know, in general, um, with chums or whatever, how far out into the ocean do they go? Way out, <laughs> like all the way out. All of them. Yeah, I mean they're overlapping in in their ocean distribution. North American. Um, salmon in general chinook tend to be a little more coastal um uh, king salmon but the, you know the others they're overlapping with asian fish and they're all in, intermingled out in the middle of the gulf and out in the middle of the north pacific and so like a, a, a north a, a salmon who might otherwise go into north korea or is going to siberia is, is interacting at sea with our fish yes yeah wow man, i didn't know that <laughs> really yeah but a king might be more of a homebody. There, yeah. They're, I mean, there's a, a yeah. They, they tend to stick closer. I mean, they tend to stick closer to the coast. Yeah, yeah. And then and you think about the, the the fisheries, right? Like people catch along the coast of Alaska, and presumably for themselves, people catch king salmon year round. Winter kings. They call oh, yeah. It, they call it the blackmouth season. Yeah, yeah. But you know who? There, there aren't any coho inshore that there's time no of winter year. Coho. Yeah, there's no winter coho fishery. Or there's no, you know, there's no chum salmon inshore. Or so, um, but yeah, there, there are king salmon in, in coastal waters all the time. When you say interact with these other salmon out there, is it like one school passes by the other school, or is it like all of a sudden they're like, "Hey, let's all get together and feed together"? For a <sighs> That's few a good days. question. I don't know. No one knows that yet. I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe judging by how. Some people that in sort of engage in that sort of research might see, you know, in a if they're hooking fish or gill netting or whatever, they may see that they're intermingled with fish of Asian origin or whatever. But I'm not that familiar with that. On that work. same note, do they ever bump in each other in spawning same spawning sources like, or no? Because at that point they are going to their home stream, and there won't be two species in the same home stream oh for sure yeah yeah but different timing but what he was saying is there was fish coming out of asia and then coming out of north america that when they're out there growing they're they might be swimming around together like they go so far out into the ocean that they yeah they're competing with each other yeah yeah but that doesn't happen with a Oh, I got you. I got you. No, because yeah, they split up. Think about yeah. dirt. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. If, they did, if they came all back to the same place, they would cease to be different of different origins. Yeah, I'm saying though that each subspecies, there's never a case where these aren't subspecies or not subspecies. Each species wouldn't come from the same, you know, freshwater source. Like there wouldn't be pinks and chum coming from the same like freshwater spawning ground oh yeah for sure they they do yeah and I mean, it, will they like run into each other at that oh, phase like, oh, oh yeah oh I, I, are you saying this dirt are you saying that do pinks and chums intermingle out in the high seas opposite in the spawning like back at theirs where they you know they'll spawn. be in the river at the same time yeah oh definitely they're choosing like different types of habitat and stuff but they can certainly overlap yeah during the at the timing of their spawning, yeah. Is there, and what made me ask that is like, do they ever, is there ever 
I don't know if crossbreeding is oh, the right hi- hybridizing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I think that's pretty rare in the native range of salmon, but in the Great Lakes, I know that it's not. It's it's not uncommon there. I've seen. Yeah. In the Great Lakes, where Pacific several species of Pacific salmon have been introduced, I have seen hybrids of king salmon and pink salmon. Okay, yeah, that's really. What I was yeah. curious. So. Kinks, <laughs> <laughs> kinks. It looks like a great big humpy, does it? Yeah, yeah. Just because the way that they are, you know, like you're saying that so much eggs and so much sperm, like it's think, all mixed in there. Yeah, man, like yeah. big old fish orgy. Yeah, they're all spawning roughly the same time of yeah. year. Oh, yeah, interesting. But in the, you know, I th- in, the, in the native range, it's, it, maybe it happens, I, but... I, not common. Yeah, not common. All right, dogs and chums. They don't go, they tend to not go far into the rivers. But, but some, there was some very serious uh, exceptions, yeah. Like the ones like, that'll go thousands, thousands miles. of yeah kilometers at least up the Yukon, yeah, and, all, and other rivers. Okay, and pinks are never found up there. No, p- pinks will go a little ways in, you know, miles, tens of miles, maybe hundreds of miles, but not thousands. Yeah, I would invite the listener to go pull up a map of to pull up a map of North America and ponder for a moment. Look at the Yukon. So, like, you can imagine, like, like how big Alaska is. Okay, biggest state. If you center Alaska over a map with lower 48, you kind of like wind up centering Alaska, you know, in the, around Iowa or so. And um, southeast Alaska goes way down into Texas. The, I think the Aleutians go out to the California coast. No, southeast look, Alaska is like Georgia and down in there. Yeah. It's just huge. So, so, but look at a map of North America and ponder for a moment that fish entering the Yukon. So the Yukon kind of like cuts Alaska in half, east to west, and flows out um, in western Alaska. That salmon that are entering the Yukon at the coast are spawning in Canada. Yeah. And, and the United States has a treaty with Canada dictating how many salmon we're going to let swim through the border. In, it's an enormous journey. Yeah, I don't know how many miles it is at that point, but it's a lot. Yeah. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home... 
Well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Um, And that's chums. And real quick, back well, up, because there's the thing I wanted you to touch on. The sort of like economic value. Or you know, no, the, like the table fare value. Chums are low man on the totem pole of the five salmon. The least well regarded from a food from a food perspective. Oh, I guess I guess so. And I'm uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I can speak more as an Alaskan and so, someone who you know eats a lot of salmon and, and, and has a lot of conversations about salmon and is like sort of steeped in salmon culture. But yeah, and, and, and I don't think there's a great market for them either. But I mean, I think the reason they have the nickname dog salmon is because it's you know. It's often dog food, even, even, even still today. Um, and yeah, pink salmon are pretty low regard in in terms of food value too, at least among Alaskans. A lot of them wind up in cans. Yeah, yeah, but there's an industry around canned pink salmon, and um, a, a lot of that goes to y- Europe and England in particular. Um, and the color on a pink salmon it might be why they call them pink salmon. I think that's what that refers to. Is, is the, pink the flesh. flesh is pink, yeah. not red? Yeah, and chums are and like reds have red flesh, very red. Yeah, very red, appetizing flesh. Yeah, and yeah, chum salmon don't have great color, um, and they tend to have low fat content because they're not undergoing a long freshwater migration, and so it kind of keeps the demand down and the price down. They have big eggs though, and um, they're that's a um, their fish commercially, a lot of their commercial value is in the row, 
most of which gets which probably goes to markets in asia yep yep okay what's the next salmon um let's go to sockeye reds (laughs) reds or sockeyes yep reds reds or sockeyes um yeah so so similar type of life history pattern uh they're anadromous and uh they the adults return from the ocean to their natal river or uh in the case of sockeye lakes um they are strongly associated with lakes and spawning occurs um often in or near lakes so they go up a river to get to a lake yes yes exactly right um and they're on so like we talked about with pinks and chums after they emerge from the gravel those two head to sea sockeye for the most part head to a lake and so the spawning occurs like along the beaches and lakes in some cases where there's upwelling or, or, or sort of wind-driven kind of currents. Um, or they'll spawn in feeder streams or even outlet streams. And those fish are sort of genetically programmed to know where that lake is and head for that lake once they hatch, be it upstream or downstream from their particular location. And they spend a year or two in most, or a year or two rearing in that lake. In a lake. In a lake, yep. And they get how big in the lake? Oh, what is... What's that, two and a half eight, inches long? 80, 100 millimeters, I think. Uh, I'm just roughly, yeah, a few inches. What's the advantage there? So then he spends a year or two in a freshwater lake, and then he's like, now I will go to the ocean. Now, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. And what's the advantage of that? Um, probably just, an, it's just a niche they filled, you know, they're in that lake and they're in, you know, instead of, well, we'll talk about how king salmon and Saka and coho salmon sort of make a living as juveniles in the river, but they've just sort of adapted this lifestyle where they're living in a lake and they feed on plankton in the water column. They're sort of a pelagic, uh, fish for a couple of years. But at some point their needs become too great and they go to sea. Yeah, it's at some point they sort of in, a, in an evolutionary sense they've made the decision that they can grow a lot faster by migrating to the ocean. There's, uh, the, 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 the marine environment is much more productive. There's a lot more food out there. When they reach a size that is big enough that they're not going to get eaten the, the the moment they <laughs> poke out there, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a balance. How long do you stay in freshwater? But when they reach a certain size, they'll, they'll head to the ocean. They're big enough to survive. I mean, the survival rate's very low, regardless of how big these fish are when they're migrating. But yeah, they get to a certain size, they head to the ocean, they take their chances there um, because the return is potentially you know, huge in terms of uh, the potential for uh, the, the forage base is much larger. And how long do they, how long does a red or a sockeye go out to sea for? Um, they're rather variable, but um, I would, two to four years, I think is pretty common. And they come back weighing about what? Like just from a fishing perspective, like oh, about how big are they? Pound wise. Um, oh, like, you know, maybe three to six or eight pounds is pretty common. Just guessing. Um, and then two quick things. Can you explain like what a kokanee is? 
So yeah, a kokanee is a, a landlocked sockeye salmon. So it's a population of sockeye salmon that lives in a lake um, that, for whatever reason, they don't, they, don't, they don't go to the ocean. Either they've sort of you know, made that decision not to go or they're somehow blocked. And there are natural populations, because there's a lot of introduced populations yes. of kokanee, but they yes. come from natural populations that somehow through some cataclysmic yeah. event, presumably. No, no, no I, don't, I don't think kokanee are necessarily... Um, blocked from going to the ocean. It's sort of just life history. Decisions. So there are so, kokanee populations that could go to the ocean. Yeah, they stay sp- in lakes. They, they spin off from that lake's sockeye population and just become kokanee. Just, I mean, you can think of it the same way as some resident rainbow trout populations have spun off the steelhead population. Gotcha. And just stay put. So the opposite happened there. Yeah. And then, but kokanees are dinky though. Yeah, they don't get big because they I mean they reach sexual maturity at a small size because they're in that lake environment. But compare that to how big an ocean sockeye is. That just shows you the the, the, the difference in growth potential between those two environments. That it's worth the gamble. Yeah, and then they'll sockeyes will do some mega migrations or no? They go, yeah, they use the whole North Pacific. Yeah, no, I mean when they go up a river, they'll shoot. Yeah, I mean they're really attached to lakes. So if you have a river system that has a lake. You know, way, way, way upstream. Uh, oh, what's Redfish Lake in Idaho? That's an interesting example. Um, I don't know how far inland that is, but it was a sockeye population all the way in Idaho. They, they're going up the, they're going up the Columbia, Columbia, and then into the Clearwater or whatever. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. Uh, and then that fish. Talk about this for a minute, because like that fish is a fatty fish, right? Uh yeah, you know, in turn, I'm not sure about. Well, here's the, the question. Here's the, the question I want to ask. There, why do you see? Why do some people think there's a salmon called a Copper River salmon? Like as its own species, sort of. Well, it's it's more of a brand than a species, yes. but yeah. Um, but so you know, there's in lots of ways salmon adapt to their. You know, they're really a product of their river, and they adapt to their specific river. And you know, so in, in the case of well, I mentioned earlier, fat content is sort of an, it's sort of an adaptive trait of salmon, and it relates to, um, you know, once salmon begin their freshwater migration, they stop feeding and they live on their fat reserves, and fish that um, are destined for a spawning ground that's further up some river uh, tend to put on a little more fat than fish that are spawning lower in the watershed. Um, so the Copper River being a l- lar- relatively large watershed with some you know in terms of sockeye some somewhat long migrations they tend to be a little fatter and people certainly value that um the, the fatty content yeah yeah um and the comparison that's often made you know in south central alaska is to that of the kenai salmon that's another the kenai river is another really popular local sockeye salmon fishery and the migration uh for the freshwater migration there isn't quite as long and people regard those some people at least regard those fish as being less fatty and less flavorable, but there's probably some data on it. I don't, I'm not familiar with it though. Can you real quick explain the dip net fishery that you engage in? Yeah. So, uh, Alaska residents are allowed to participate in a number of fisheries that are called personal use fisheries where, um, yeah, they let you do some things that would be considered poaching pretty much anywhere else. Uh, the, so there are a few in South Central Alaska, the Copper River, the Kenai River, the Kasilof River, and sometimes some others. Um, during a, principally, yeah, these are mostly focused on sockeye salmon, but the state opens it up to for locals to fish with dip nets. 
And um, a dip net is defined as basically a landing net with a hoop up to five feet in diameter. So they're potentially very large nets. And people will line up on the, on, along a beach and waders with these nets in the water or in some cases fish from a boat and sort of tow these nets down river. You got to hold them in your hand. And you're allowed um, you know, a generous supply of salmon for your family. Um, like it might be 15 sockeyes for the head of household. 25 right now. So I think the, the Kenai and the copper have separate, are managed separately with separate limits, but you're allowed a 25 for the head of the household and 10 This is an annual limit. And then 10 fish for each member of the household. Um, so my family would be allowed 55 salmon from each of those rivers. That's far more than we need. But yeah, we, from every, so often we head out dip netting and get some fish, yeah. Like up to your ankle deep in the boat fish. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, it's nice to be able to go out and one shot, get a whole bunch of salmon and, you know, take, take good care of them, get them in the freezer and be done with it, you know? Yeah, yeah and then can them. Can them, freeze them. Yeah, different people do different things with them. But Do you still mess around with your steel canner? You know, I, no, I haven't used that in years. I want to get it out, though, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, Yanni? He bought like a thing to make a like a home job to make steel cans instead right. of glass instead of glass jars. Yeah, it just it, it it just crimps the lid on the can is what it does, and then you still process it in the canner. You know that thing's pretty sweet. It is cool. Yeah, I, need to I remember you made me a teal duck in a can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so that's the sockeye, uh, and the sockeye is the earliest. He runs quicker than anybody, right? In the spring, in the summer. Oh, that that run timing all depends on where you're at. Yeah. Oh, it does. Um, but around here, yeah, the king salmon and sockeye tend to be the earliest. June? Um, yeah, even May for king salmon in some places. Um, they're, they're starting, yeah. Um, June and July for sockeye around here. And then, yeah, later in June and into July, the um, pinks and chums start showing up and then pretty much probably everywhere in Alaska the, the coho or the silvers are the, tend to be the latest let's move on to the next one so we've covered pinks pinks humpies chums dogs red sockeyes mm-hmm. uh, coho silver that's the next one yeah we'll save the, we'll save the king for last yeah um so, yeah, coho or silver, um, they're cool salmon. I, the thing I like about them is that um, they're an, a, sort of an aggressive and a, a sporty salmon. They like to chase flies and they like to hit lures. And they run every little trickle. They're just coho everywhere. Um, and yeah, you can fish them just about anywhere. They're 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 and they're yeah a, a, a great eating salmon. Um, they're they're kind of like yeah just like the everyman salmon. You know they 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 run all over the place. Um, in terms of life history, uh, obviously anadromous uh, spawn in so a little bit later in the year. They're, they're more in, at least around here. They're more of a fall spawner. Uh, September October. They, the eggs overwinter in the gravel, they emerge in the spring, but unlike all the others we've talked about up to this point, the coho then spends two, two years typically in Alaska, two years 
um, rearing in a stream. They don't go to a lake like the Sock or go to sea like the Pinks. So he gets thing. how big? About <laughs> 100 millimeters or so. Same thing. Yeah. Three, a three-inch fish. Yeah, yeah. And so in Alaska, it takes a couple years to do that. Sometimes you'll see them taking a little longer. A few of them go out after one year. But so most you think you're looking at a dinky little trout, but it's a coho. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. If to the casual observer, it would look like a small rainbow trout or something. Yeah, yeah. And then goes out to the ocean and lives out in the ocean for how long? One year. That's it? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. So when you're catching 12-pound silvers, those are a year old? Yeah. No, they're three years well, old. I, yeah, one year. been out in the ocean One year at sea. Year. Oh, I'm sorry. One year yeah. at sea. Yeah. So he spends way more of his life in freshwater than he does in saltwater. Yes. Yeah. In, in, in Alaska, I think further south, um, they, they, they tend to uh, more commonly spend one year in freshwater. And that's a good eating fish, but not everybody admits how good they are. You say not everybody? I feel like there's some guys that are like kind of down on silvers. Some guys will only eat a king. Yeah. <laughs> there's like sockeye king guys. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask. Are the sockeyes and the cohos roughly usually for, for the average Alaskan that fishes, are they considered to be equals? Yeah. I think people sometimes do different things with them too. Like, like, Sockeye hold up to canning really well, you know, so a lot of people home can. Um, I think the, the color on that, the, the sockeye is really appealing to, you know, it's a really pretty fillet when you take it out of the freezer too. But there can't be as many, um, there can't be nearly as many tons of silvers harvested commercially. No. As sockeye? No, no. I'm the, no, sockeye are... Um, in, 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 in areas where you have rivers with lakes on them, these sort of lake systems, then sockeye are incredibly abundant. And th- those, those are you know, the, the big dollar salmon fisheries in Alaska. The big dollar commercial salmon fisheries here are sockeye fisheries. Here's, here's a quick one to throw us off the, the, the sequence that we're going through. But <laughs> how, many, uh, how many years would you have to go back to find a common ancestor and would you oh yeah yeah um oh it's in the millions maybe like i want to say six to maybe 10 or 15 million years i think like that the, the those the five the five salmon that we're talking about had all differentiated by about six million years ago what the it's, hell is that fish's groove, man? I don't know. And then going further back, the the Atlantic salmon peeled off the Pacific salmon line. At, there's a common ancestor there, too. Oh, is there really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Like all the different weather changes and stuff that have happened? <laughs> yeah. So, I th- well, you, you, I think you, you brought this up earlier, but, the, you know, there's... Uh, you know, a theory out there that, you know, all that speciation in... You know, where you have one species of Atlantic salmon, but five different Pacific salmon, that has to do with all the topographical diversity around the Pacific Rim, and the you know the uplift of mountain ranges and things, segregated habitats, and created opportunities for gotcha. divergent evolution and speciation. Yeah, like those fish can go and experience so many different kinds of. Yeah, yeah, but then you know around the sort of the Atlanta, the Atlantic Rim. You never hear that term, but. Um, yeah, it just it doesn't have the 
you know, the, all the mountain uplift and the, the potential for habitat fragmentation. It's, more, it's a little more homogenous. Yeah, yeah. That's the thinking on that anyway. That's interesting. So the last one, did we give the, did we give the silver coho its due? Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. You kind of finished on just saying how we kind of got all excited when we realized that he's, he's only in oh, yeah, the ocean for a year. The ocean, he's going out in the ocean at three inches, and a year later he comes back as a 12, 15, 16. Yeah, they grow fast, and it's really interesting. Like, you know how you know, we catch silvers around the cabin in the saltwater, and that's like some of my favorite fishing ever. You know, I absolutely love it. Um, but those fish are packing on like a pound a week when they're sort of in the inshore, like on the last bit of their sort of pre pre-spawn migration as they're moving through those channels in southeast Alaska and presumably other places, you know, as they're nearing maturity, they're feeding like crazy and just packing on weight. Hey, you know, we haven't touched on the different fish. Um, do they tend to target different stuff out in the ocean? Yeah, there, yeah, there's a, there, uh, I, I, I know a little bit about that. Um, Chinook salmon tend, tend to be a little higher on the food web. They're eating more fish fewer invertebrates um sockeye tend to be um consuming more invertebrates less fish um i think i think pink and chum are a little lower you know a little more uh, invertebrate in their diet less fish and like kings will go out and eat squid and stuff yeah 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 i think i think all of them would eat a squid given the opportunity i mean they're all generalists but they, they you know they they have their own sort of preferences yeah Okay, so kings, Chinooks. What the hell is the word Chinook? It's got to be a native word. Oh, yeah, from where? I don't know. Is coho a native word, do you think? I don't know. It's a good question. Silver, like when you talk about a coho or silver, the silver has to refer to the side of that fish. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine that. It's I mean, it looks like it's chrome. Yeah. Yeah. Like made out of chrome. Like, <laughs> it's like made out of stainless steel. Double dip chrome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a Chinook, Probably a native word. King being he is the big bad mofo of the King salmon. of salmon, yeah. He's the bad mofo yeah. of the salmon world. So what's their basic rundown? Uh quite similar to that of the coho. They'll uh, hang out in the freshwater. Yeah, here uh most of the s- King salmon in Alaska spend a year in freshwater. And then several years in saltwater is how that goes. That's why they get so big. Yeah. Yep. They'll go out for several years. Three, four is pretty common. Five uh, certainly happens. So when someone catches a giant, is it, pro- is, it, is it likely that that just meant he was out longer? Yeah. Or is he just doing the right thing and not making mistakes? It's a little bit of both. But yeah, I think like a really hog king salmon is, uh, has been out there a while. Four or five years. But then that's what you, earlier you kind of mentioned this, like the sort of paradox. So that means that there was a handful of times when his body felt that it, that it, it wasn't right. quite ready. Yeah. It wasn't right. It it's, wasn't getting, it wasn't getting what it needs. And so it postpones yep. its spawning run, but then turns into some 50, 60 pound fish. That's exactly right. Yeah. If he was really kicking ass, he would have came back. He would have went to sea and came back that summer as a jack. If they're really growing fast, sometimes they don't even leave the river. So does a jack die when it spawns? Yeah. Every salmon we've talked about dies when it spawns. Yes. Yes. Pacific salmon, well, it gets a little squirrely because of the steelhead here, which is 
sort of technically a Pacific salmon, but that that that, that that's the only one that 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 will live to spawn again. And a steelhead is a rainbow trout. I mean, this is in layman's layman's terms. It's a rainbow trout that goes to the ocean for yeah, some of its life. It's an anadromous rainbow trout. Yeah, it's in the same genus as the Pacific salmon. But a rain, but a steelhead can spawn multiple times. Yes. Yeah, but Pacific salmon always spawn after they die. Atlantics can go back to the ocean? Yes. Yes. It's not a death sentence to spawn. No. No. I mean, a, a, a lot of them the do world? die. But what but is the advantage of the dying? So the advantage of the dying is it's, it's a trade-off. They're basically committing all of their resources to one reproductive event. So they can make more eggs, bigger eggs. They can defend their nest. They're just plowing it all into one event at the expense of any future potential spawning. Going for broke. They're just going for broke. Exactly right. In an evolutionary sense, yeah. And if like that works for them, why did it not work? It's just like when I was being so weird, like why did it not work for Steelhead? Yeah, just I, yeah, they're operating in a different... <laughs> Yeah, a good time machine question would be to go back more toward that co- like the common ancestor. And what was that fish's groove? Yeah, what's the ancestral trait there? Yeah, was the whole dying thing a later like something that came around later, or have they been doing that the dying trick for a long time? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Are the Can't, oh good are the Atlantic salmon? Do they have traits more similar to that initial like before the the split of the species? in that that they can spawn multiple times and that they didn't have the like I said yeah that's a good question and I mean like there aren't I'm not sure that's something you can derive from the fossil record like you know things about the nuances of behavior you know so there's not a lot of salmon fossils to begin with so um, yeah somebody might know the answer to that but not me why do uh, why do why are dams so bad for fish uh, well, quite a, they impact the habitat in a lot of ways, but the most obvious is that they block migration. That is the most upstream obvious and problem. downstream, and they convert a big chunk of river to a pond, you know, and all the and, and you, um, and you get a whole set of predators that t- tend to live in those ponds, right? And then when you when you have juvenile fish on their seaward migration and they're used to sort of riding the spring melt plume out to the ocean and they're making that journey. And like taking a, a lickety split trip. And all of a sudden they hit a lake, you know, it really slows things down. Full of walleye. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Full of walleye and pike minnows and all kinds of other fish that, that weren't originally there that want to eat you. Yeah, and then you got turbines to contend, contend with and, you know, the impacts of Which like mechanically through. kill the fish. I mean, like, meaning like smack them in the head. Well, it's, you know, I don't, uh, it, yeah, they're not. It's not plenty of fish pass through them and live, but in, mm-hmm. but and, and this is more Pacific Northwest type stuff, and it's not really my, you know, my area. But um, yeah, you guys don't have any major. Um, you don't have any major. No, bands. we don't have big hydro projects here. No, there's one that's kicked around once in a while on the Susitna River, but um, no, it's not. Um, yeah, we're sort of lagging behind you guys. Uh, dam every, building, yeah, hope, dam building. I'm hoping you don't <laughs> yeah. catch. I'm hoping you don't catch. Yeah, up. yeah. But like, so why are kings? Okay, the fu- is the future bright for pink salmon? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, pink salmon being so short lived, they're you know they're quite adaptable. Uh, they're a little, a little bit weedy. You know, they're 
Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's numbers are really high right now. But why are Kings then like, why are Kings so screwed? Like what is their Achilles heel? So yeah, like all, you never hear any good news about Kings. Yeah. So it's like, like river system after river system. It's like there's fewer, they're not as big, fewer, they're not as big. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the King salmon have been trending downward in size for decades decades uh, decades yeah and do you it, feel that it's human causes this size selective harvest probably plays a role in that yeah there the the there, there's a fair bit of speculation about what's driving that it's probably not any one thing um but people have been harvesting salmon for a long time and and it's it's non-random um, and so, yeah, selectively harvesting larger individuals is, you know, is going to drive down size. Yeah. So that, that's probably part of it. Changes in ocean productivity, uh, f- food resources at sea, that sort of things probably also plays a role. So like general, general overfishing in the seas could be, re- could, it could nah, be that. Not, not, I mean, not over, overfishing sort of a separate issue, you know, that's taking so many that they can't replace themselves right or or but this is this is sort of fishing in a non-random way right you're 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 selectively harvesting the larger or faster growing individuals and you're sort of left with the but but what about the food aspect if so um yeah, yeah, king salmon. You, I mentioned earlier that they feed a little bit more coastally. They're a little bit more of a cold adapted salmon. They're in deeper water. They're in colder water. Um, they're feeding in a sort of a different food web than the other salmon. They tend to be more at the surface, more offshore. And yeah, it's 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 possible that um, the changing climate patterns and ocean circulation patterns have affected their food resources in a way that hasn't impacted the resources of the other species. Am I right in saying that they're just kind of screwed? Is that not, is that true or not true? I don't know. I mean, there's a long history of salmon, you know, having problems and bouncing back, you know, there is. and, um, what's an example of a salmon that had a problem and bounced back? Oh, there, you know, any, look at any run within alaska there there are periods of low productivity and periods of high productivity it it, it happens in lots of places um so you think that the problem with kings it like if, if you just like sort of like i i go beyond casual but i you know I, I take in news about fish i have it selected for my personal news feed the fisheries yeah i'm always reading like really bad stuff about kings could it wind up being that in 10 years we're like man did we have a rough stretch yes it, really it, it it very well could yeah yeah i mean it's probably related to ocean conditions and you know though there are these regime shifts and things that occur that I can't begin to understand the physics behind them but there are these regime shifts that change in the ocean and it's like throwing a switch and all of a sudden things just turn around it's it's possible that could happen or it's possible that I mean, like El Nino, La Nina type activity. Exactly, exactly. Or, or, or it's possible that that somehow we've you know affected the the fish or their habitat in a way that it's not they're not compatible with it anymore. Only time will tell. Um, but can you, go ahead. 
No, uh, finish up. Oh, I was just gonna say there are there are you know certainly examples of fish having you know potentially prolonged periods of low productivity that all of a sudden something changes and they turn it around, snap it around. But you know, Alaska has here we have the benefit that our that our you know our sort of freshwater river habitat is really intact. It's most of it is is in really good condition, and um, that that gives them a lot of resilience. Um, that they don't have in other places. You mentioned something to me before that I, I've mentioned a couple of times since you told me about it. We were talking about conservation, wildlife conservation, and you were you were saying how, just in, in speaking in a general sense, not applied to any particular species, but you're saying that, that conservation is such a different thing in the lower 48 where you guys um, have been in recovery mode for so long. Yeah. And in Alaska, it's more like like you're not really in a recovery mode. You're in a, almost in a descriptive mode up here. Yeah, in a, in a con- conserving mode. We're trying to learn from the lessons uh, of lower 48. Yeah. Like what exactly did those guys do down yeah. there to screw their salmon up so bad? And how can we avoid making the same mistakes? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting, too. A lot of the conservation efforts here, too, and I think it's, I think it's a worthwhile endeavor, but they're trying to like foster a relationship between Alaskans and salmon or, or to strengthen that relationship to make like salmon, like a, a real sort of, um, cultural touchstone here. So that people are more inclined to want to protect. Everybody gives a shit about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's effort well spent. Just to increase the cultural awareness. Yeah. Cultural value. Yep. Yep. To make it be that it's more valuable than Everybody gold. Everybody cares. It's more yeah. valuable than gold or more valuable than... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and part of that's just pointing out how economically and culturally they are important, and part of it is trying to, you know, strengthen relationships that people have. And there's a lot of people moving in and out of Alaska all the time, and, you know, a huge part of our population is somewhat transient, but getting those people connected to salmon. What was it that caused... Um, what was the thinking that led people to want to start beginning to introduce salmon into the Great Lakes where we grew up? Oh, so in terms of the steelhead, I think that was largely a, a sport fish. That was the first of the salmon to be introduced. And that was in the late 1800s. Um, oh, they tried steelhead first. To my knowledge, I, they, they may have tried other salmon that didn't take, but steelhead had, were introduced in, they got them to go I quick. They're from California steelhead stock, and they introduced them in the late 1800s. And yeah, and there was a lot of kind of hatchery production keeping that propped up. But I think that there are some self-supporting populations there. But the Pacific salmon, um, Chinook salmon, were introduced what late 60s? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, yeah, the the chronology was weird. And it's not really the main point I wanted to ask you about. But uh, but yeah, the motivation was that. Um, you know, the Great Lakes had been sort of taken over by one wave after another of, of invasive species. And um, the the alewife was one that was introduced via the sort of Welland Shipping Canal that came in from the Atlantic coast into the Great Lakes. And its population had exploded by the, I guess, late 60s, maybe early 70s. And the state of Michigan, to, to my knowledge, stocked the Chinook salmon in an attempt to get something to eat all those alewives up. Um, do you remember oh, yeah. Dead Alwives when we were kids? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Like just carpeting thick. the beaches. It was like yeah. national news stories yeah, about all the Dead Alwives. 
Um, and I know that they tried multiple times to get various fish going, but but like um, so they established a pink population in the Great Lakes. Yeah, and that was accidental. Uh, all the pinks and the salmon in the Great Lakes came from one accidental stocking at I think it was from an Ontario hatchery. Um. On the Lake Huron side, and I think they were holding pink salmon at a hatchery because they were trying to introduce, uh, if I have this right, they were trying to introduce a population on the Canadian Atlantic somewhere. Really? And they were holding them at a hatchery in the Great Lakes, and some escaped somehow, and that was all it took. They just adapted very, very quickly to... In the northern waters more. Yeah, the northern maybe half of the Great Lakes. They're a lot. They, you know, they 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 moved. You know, from from their point of release, they had, they were establishing runs in nearby streams. You know, pretty quickly, and they spread around the upper Great Lakes. Does it make sense now that oh, so so they have you know they've got Chinooks or kings in the Great Lakes. Yeah. There's cohos in the Great Lakes. There's yeah, and the, rain, I mean, there's rainbow or uh, steelhead in the Great Lakes. Does it make sense that they were that that, that would you look now, know what you now know, and say, "Oh yeah, of course, sockeyes and chums aren't going to work in the Great Lakes." You know, no, I think I, I think that's kind of hard to predict. It's <laughs> sometimes they take and sometimes they don't. And there's, there's there's a bit of a history of people trying to move salmon around, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't know if anyone would be able to guess as to whether or not they would take or not. But yeah, th- th- those are. I know sockeye have been tried in the Great Lakes. They didn't take coho. I'm not even sure that they're self-sustaining anywhere there um it's hatchery runs i think so but man that's yeah i haven't that's another world there's a book that i have called fishing the great lakes and it's an environmental history of the great lakes and it gets into the collapse of the native fisheries Mm -hmm. and then just that long history of people trying to make up for it yeah by rather than fixing you know, and sometimes the problems are unfixable. But like, rather than fixing the problem, let's just see if there's some other thing that might like it here. Yeah. As we do whatever, and like interesting things that, you know, the logging boom where they were, you know, logging off the the, the Great Lakes states and rafting all those logs out in the Great Lakes and the bays and estuary areas, or it's not estuary because it's not saltwater, but the river mouth. River mouth, yeah. And all the bark when you're floating logs. The bark eventually falls away from the tree, and that you have spawning areas that were covered in 12, 15 feet of bark, destroying fisheries, and then overfishing, destroying fisheries. Then later, people being like, "Well, let's try <laughs> maybe a salmon like it." I don't know, you know. Yeah, and on and on to the point where they introduced the common carp, alewives, smell. Well, the carp was intentional. Others, others weren't. Yeah, the carp was intentional. Yeah, uh, brown trout. Yeah, rainbow trout. Um, Almost like like in, in some ways, like some of the biggest like ticket fish items in the Great Lakes. Oh yeah, yeah. And I don't know how widely understood it is by people that live in those areas. The, the extent to which their lakes have become sort of an experimental aquarium. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. 
Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if people make like a value judgment about it. We sure didn't growing up. I well, mean, the coolest fish you could catch was a big king. Yeah. I was going to say, it's one of, we, when we talked, who do we talk to about that? About how um, it's just like the, the baseline that you're used to. The shifting, yeah. Shifting shift, baselines, yeah. Shifting yeah. baselines. So that's what you came into, and so it's fine. But yeah, but if you were out trolling for kings and you caught a laker, people would be like, oh, laker. Grease, grease ball. Yeah, grease ball. <laughs> the, so that's like the native fish, which kind of like built this state, man. And there was like a thriving commercial industry around that fish and all this history. And the Native Americans that lived here would like lived off that fish and relied on it. And it becomes where it comes up and you're like, oh, I was hoping for the one that came on a truck and got dumped out. <laughs> of a, I was hoping for the one that got dumped out of a barrel. You know, I, I was talking to some biologists from the Great Lakes 
recently, and it, it, I was I was uh, pleasantly surprised to learn that the stars have sort of realigned for lake trout, and they're having a bit of a comeback now. The native lake trout in the Great Lakes. That was nice to hear. Perception wise, no, I'm tra- I mean, population wise. Oh, I, right? I think perception wise too. I think they're a little more valued now than they used to be. What other? If kings are down right now, pinks are up right now. Everything else, a lot, is, everything a else is up. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Numbers are great. Like the populations are. So it might not be that we just broke something that we won't be able to fix. It might be that like kings. I mean, some rivers we just broke, right? Oh yeah, like. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can, a lot, a lot of them. Columbia, Sacramento, yeah. Just that this broke. Is there a way? I know this isn't your business, but like, do you think that there's a way that? Uh, to turn around some of the broke systems, particularly in like the, some of the rivers that are so busted in, in California. Oh man, I, I, there's a whole lot of people working on that. Uh, <laughs> you should talk to one of them. Yeah, because <laughs> up here, man, it's like there's like seems to be like a general optimism about salmon. Well, I mean, yeah, they're, I mean they're 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 at at his, historical sort of a, a high point in their abundance right now. Um, the last couple decades have been great for salmon uh, in general, with the exception of Chinook having sort of a 10-year slump in productivity. Yeah. Let's say something happened, and the oceans got a, just whatever, the oceans got a degree or two warmer. Would that shift open up a lot of habitat to salmon? That they're not currently using because it's too cold. Like, would you take? Would the whole show just kind of move north, or are there reasons that it wouldn't work like that? Ask, I, <laughs> ask an oceanographer. Um, no, I. I, there, I think there are fish running rivers further north now, like into Arctic Alaska and, and presumably Arctic Canada. Um, that maybe didn't have runs in the past. Yep. Yep. But see, that gets to another question I wanted to ask you. But expound on that for a minute, and then I'm going to ask you, you another know, question. Fish or salmon are certainly you know moving further north into the Bering Sea and beyond. But um, yeah, I, I don't think you can assume that 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 you know just just given the shape of that basin, right? You're losing if if you just shift the entire envelope of salmon further north, you have a lot less habitat to work with. Um, oh, I mean, because it shrinks as it gets north. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just yeah. But the idea that they shift, like, like you could have a northern river that right now doesn't get fish, and it's just too cold or whatever. Yeah. So let's say there was this idea that, like, you, that a river would have fish turn up in it. That brings up a really interesting question, is that their fidelities out of their home stream must not be entirely strict. It's not absolute, no. Because how would a fish ever find a new river yeah, if he well, has to go back to where he was born? I mean, go back 15,000 years and... You know, most of Alaska salmon habitat was under ice. Uh, yeah. So, what accounts for that? That's a good point. So, during like, you know, the the all the different glacial periods, yeah, there was no salmon run because it was just yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, built into their sort of life history is a, a certain propensity for a small number of individuals to go to the wrong river. 
what percent do they know oh it's small it's small and it varies by species and it varies by it's 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 sort of an it's an adaptive trait it's sort of bred into the system you know oh it's great that some of them would make a mistake oh yeah yeah it makes perfect sense it it allows for a little genetic mixing among population and allows for colonization of new habitats so yeah it's built into their life history do you remember in sault saint marie um so i'm I'm gonna paint this picture for for the listeners In, in sault saint marie michigan you have a uh, the St. Mary's River drains Lake Superior and it falls, I think, 22 feet or 18 feet or something 14 like that. 14 something, yeah. Falls some number of feet, more than 10, through the Sioux Rapids. And then the St. Mary's River flows down after draining Lake Superior, it flows down the St. Mary's River and flows into Lake Huron. In Sault Ste. Marie, there's a, there's a hydroelectric project where they cut a channel to funnel some of that water that's coming down the St. Mary's to flow through a hydroelectric canal that then goes out and and pushes a bunch of electric turbines. So it's like they they chiseled off a a branch of the stream to power a hydroelectric dam. Yeah, it goes from above the falls, loops around, and it dumps them below the falls. Yeah, they're capitalizing on that whatever it is. I think it's 14 feet. 14 to 18, 20, whatever the hell number of feet it is. It capitalizes on that fall to get a good head of water going to push, to turn the turbines in a dam. And this dam has a bunch of turbines, but some of the turbines have, were given over to a fish lab. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. And all the, 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 the turbines or tunnels would have names, and there's one through whatever the hell. <laughs> yeah. And they would rear atlantics as a part of this experimental project to like establish atlantics in the great lakes they would rear atlantics in a certain in a certain tunnel i think it was number one yeah he's on that end of the building yeah and you could go there and we would go there to fish whitefish and you could go and look and you could just see the atlantics that were returning and they would return to the fish lab do you remember this yeah they returned to that tunnel i mean they, they go to they nose into a lot of those tunnels but they, they, they would like the yeah. one that they were coming from you would look in the like wait there'd be like 10 in that one three in the next one yeah and then maybe like one in the next one and you could sort of see like how good they were at hitting the right spot whatever they were smelling or keying oh off yeah of. it's, it's scent yeah and then there was some other ones who were like close but not quite yeah yeah shifting around down there um yeah these things are separated by yards yeah 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 no that that they uh there's a a a window of time when those salmon are young where they sort of memorize or imprint the scent of their stream and that's all that's the last you know bit of migrating they do they're doing it by their nose what's the first bit of migrating they do oh it's sort of like I, i don't understand biologically how it works but it's sort of like a Um, they're triangulating their position based on like sun angle and magnetism and things like that. So they have sort of a, think of it as like a mental map and they're using that to get in the rough vicinity. And then at some point their nose more or less takes over. So if you went out on the high, is, is, is it believed that if you went on the high seas, okay, you have a, you have a salmon that came out of a specific river. So it came out of the Kenai River and he's out on the high seas and you went and caught him and blindfolded him. And then heli, li- heli lifted him two miles and put him back in the ocean. Do you feel like he'd turn up at the same river? Oh, because he can't be backtracking. 
Oh, where did you catch them? I'm just saying, you pick them out of the high seas somewhere and blindfold them. In the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and move them 100 miles. Oh, oh, oh. But then you unblindfold them. Then you unblindfold oh. them, put them back in the He's going to have no problem. So it's not like, he, like, it's not like he remembers his route. No, 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 it's no. It's something else. No, he has, like a, he has some way of fixing his position on a mental map. Yeah. Man, are we, are we studying that right now? That how they... How oh, th- a lot of work has been done on this, yeah. The, I read about the magnetism stuff and... Yeah. It's fascinating, man. You know, on the... They work on it with turtles a lot. Oh, okay. That's how cool. do those turtles know to yeah. find that beach? You know, on the, on the scent end, there were some cool studies done in the Great Lakes back, I want to say 60s or maybe 70s, probably when they were first introducing salmon there. Um, but they held these young salmon um, in a, they had, I think they, they, they held them in a stream and they dripped some certain chemical in that stream. And those salmon imprinted on that smell and they released those salmon and let them roam around the Great Lakes for a couple of years. And when that salmon were maturing and coming back, they went like a few miles down the beach and dripped that same chemical into the wrong stream. And all the salmon went to the wrong stream where the chemical was being dripped. So when they're closing in... When they're closing in, they just pick up that scent and follow it in. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it blows your mind. Yeah, how can it be so unique, each area, you know? Oh, but you, you figure all the different ions, you know, dissolve all the different types of ions from all the different rocks and soil and everything in that water. It's like they have this whole portfolio of concentrations, and, like, they just learn that smell, you know? Can you real quick talk about, uh, this is the last thing I have you explain. Can you talk about the function of moving marine resources how a salmon is a is a mechanism that moves marine resources inland. Yeah, yeah, they're um, a sort of vector to move um, energy and nutrients up rivers. Um, like we said earlier, in at, in high latitudes, fresh waters are much less productive than ocean waters and salmon do this cool trick where they go out to the sea and it's it's not intentional. It's just a byproduct of their life history, but they go out to sea and they, they, they put on a bunch of weight and then they swim, you know, upstream and, and, and bring with them all of this fat and protein and phosphorus and nitrogen and all these different forms of fertilizer that the, fish that rear in those streams and the insects and the algae and so they're sort of fertilizing that stream feeding bears feeding birds yeah yeah and that 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 river is you know it's flowing it's taking spending all this time taking nutrients from the landscape and bringing them out to the ocean and then salmon sort of reverse that flow uh once a year and and bring in you know in, in, in cases with big runs many many tons of nutrients back to the land um yeah, and it def- it it's, it has a lot of um, uh, sort of feedbacks within the within the ecosystem in terms of feeding. So, do you feel that you, there's probably places where if you eliminated the salmon, you could you would that you could feasibly trigger a sort of ecological collapse? Um, yeah, it would. It, you know, it would, it would certainly be bad for you know 
large you know, mobile consumers that that move around and eat salmon like bears and you know eagles and other and other scavengers yeah um and it's, some of the work that i've been involved with has shown that um juvenile salmon that are exposed to um large volumes of salmon eggs and other types of resources will grow faster than those that don't have access to as much you know salmon eggs and flesh and other marine resources and there's I mean, a whole I mean, lot the, of literature that the juveniles are eating the that are directly feeding off the grown the carcasses of the grown yeah the carcasses and the eggs you know and yeah there's been a whole lot of work in different places around alaska looking at different aspects of this but um oh like for instance out in, in bristol bay in southwest alaska where you know the, the, there are trophy rainbow populations out there that are um, fished by anglers from all over the world, you know, from the staying at high end lodges. And it's a, it's one of Alaska's sort of premier trophy sport fisheries. But, um, those trophy rainbow trout out there get, you know, a huge fraction of their, their annual nutritional intake just by eating salmon eggs. It's a, a, a huge, uh, diet item for them. And it comes in a pretty short period of time, you know, it's our late summer, early fall. They're getting most of their caloric intake for the whole year. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Then they just chill out. Just chill out. Water gets cold, their metabolism slows down, and they just kind of hang on to that weight, you know, until the next year. Yanni, you got more questions? When those salmon are out in the ocean, I believe there's a term for this, for two different types of fish out in the ocean, ones that are just like constantly moving and constantly eating. Versus one that actually has, has a resting time. You understand my question? Yeah, and it kind of changes the flesh too, right? The type of flesh. The yeah, has. but salmon are all on the same page with right, that. They They're, are. Yeah. They are. But what's that called? Oh, like a. I mean, yeah, like a cruising pelagic fish. They're mobile. They're always swimming. They never go down to the bottom and sit there. No, they're not going to go down like a halibut or a rockfish and hang out on the bottom. Yeah, but they're but yeah they're a roving epipelagic predator. Yeah, and he's just con- eating just constantly. I mean, it's just like that's his- oh, I'm sure they slack off at certain times, but yeah, I mean they're they're you know they're a, they're a yeah an, an actively swimming mobile fish. They never sleep like how we perceive of sleep, huh? No, I'm asking. Oh, I thought you were making a statement because this is something I <laughs> never really looked into. Yeah, but I mean, they never go. They, they can't go like lay down. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, yeah. You know, like when we used to go out as kids gigging frogs. I shouldn't say this because now we know you're not supposed to do it. But you can't do it with the art. You're not supposed to gig frogs in Michigan with an artificial light. But we would go out with artificial lights. Remember? Yeah. To look for bullfrogs and well, crayfish. That's perfectly legal. We'd go out to do that, and you'd catch bluegills. We're like that bluegill is oh, asleep. Yeah. yeah. You'd catch bluegills just like completely zoned out. You'd almost like walk up and grab them. Yeah. You know, I, I, around the shack, I have seen salmon where they're sitting at the surface still with their fins out of the water sometimes. Oh, really? I, Hold I them still. I don't, maybe that's sleeping. Yeah. But they are, they tend to use the top of the water, the, the light, the lit version of the water. Oh, column. yeah. Even when they're out at in the middle of the ocean, yeah, they're just using the top of the water column. Yeah. Not down deep. Dirt, final questions? I got a couple, actually. Lay it on me, man. Um, so finning, I did, I did a little persaining years ago. Oh, yeah. And we'd always sit around in a finning group and jumpers. Oh, yeah. And what's the purpose of both of those when they're kind of like close to it? 
Oh, like what are they accomplishing with that yeah. behavior? I mean, when, they, when they're all pooled up with their fins out of the water, yeah. and what do they do when they jump? Yeah, and like I've heard various opinions of what they're trying to do. Oh, I, yeah, I don't even have one. Yeah, you know it's a fascinating the, you know behavior. Say, you know one of the things people say? What? Loosening the eggs. It loosens their eggs up. Oh. <laughs> how, I mean, how do you answer that question, I guess? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's cool to be around that. When, like when uh, you really know that there's – it's cool to be around all that life, you know. Yeah. You can just look out there and see salmon fins sticking up out of the water. And there's jumpers everywhere, and there's you know it's way larger below. Yeah, too. Yeah, that's but, a good point. But is that them just it's like seeing feeding? an iceberg floating yeah. there? You know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, all fin- you're seeing is the yeah. So there's not a good theory about why. Salmon. Oh, somebody might have one. I just don't. Yeah, it's not a tested theory. Yeah, it's, I think it's a difficult one to test. And then the other one. I really want to ask about the burbot leech, but that wouldn't make sense at all. We caught all. a burbot with a parasite on it. It looked like a leech. Oh, it probably was. Oh, there okay. Cool. <laughs> I mean, I know there's leeches around. Yeah. And then one more, and this one's a little more philosophical. There may not be an answer to it, but just because you've had such a, I mean, as a fish biologist, that intimate relationship with each species, do you find yourself prone to be particular to one of those five that we talked about in your region of study? Oh, or is that not a fair question? No, I, yeah, I mean, professionally, I really like ho-ho uh, because they're just everywhere and they're abundant and they live in fresh water a long time and I work in fresh water and, um, yeah, I think they're a super cool fish, but. Um, cool. And, and that's prioritized over, like, the angling of them or eating of them. It's like their activity as as a species. Oh, it all, it all works together. You know, I got yeah. a thing for coho and part I of it's like coho's got like mooch and coho. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It all, yeah, that's it all, the one I root for, man. Yeah, angling and my professional life all sort of get intertwined, you know. Um, but yeah, I really do, I really do have a thing for, I, I really lo- love catching kings too. Um, I'm fascinated by them and it, it's just a huge accomplishment to me to catch one of those things, especially out in salt water. I love it. Um, Here's my. Th- is that cool on you? Yeah, it's great. Okay, I got one last thing I forgot to ask about. This, this is going to suffice as my concluder, and you can do a concluder if you want. You told me an interesting thing one time where you're saying that um, it's possible to have, or it's maybe possible, or it's an idea that could be entertained, that it's possible to have too many fish go up a river. Yeah. Because you would think, like, the more fish, the better. Like, bring them on. Bring them on up the river. But sure. there's a point at which you might get, like, a um, diminishing returns. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah. I don't know if this is more of a theoretical concept or if it has, like, like no, no, it has some, applicable. It's, it has some application, and, and there's, prob- there's some data behind it. Um, but, you know, in terms of the bears and the eagles, you know, there can't be too many salmon. Yep. Um, but, yeah, so... <laughs> that's actually a really big can of worms you just opened so I'm not sure oh, exactly really? where to start with this but um, I, can I, I tell you what I understood you to be saying no no I, I, well, yeah go ahead go ahead okay we were out one time I don't know you. I was just hanging around with you and we were doing some work and we were out checking minnow traps I think you were like, we were out checking minnow traps because you were out trapping baby cohos in a river. Yeah, I remember this. And you were looking at things of like how, how what's the density yeah. and what's the tolerance of competition 
yeah. of co-hosts when they're spending all this time, when they're spending these two years in the stream where they were born. And you were saying that, you, you, you were talking about this idea that um, it could be that you could have less co-hosts, less coho babies in the river, but they're all so much more healthier because they're not suffering from too much competition. And you yeah. could have been like trying an idea out. No, no. Said, and maybe like sending out 50 that are super fit and had like a great resource of food could in the end be better than and sending out sending 200 out, emaciated 200 emaciated <laughs> oh, fish sure. that weren't that weren't doing good in yeah the yeah yeah so yeah they you'd wind up with a better healthier return yes yes so um you know a, a, a river of any size has a, a finite amount of spawning and rearing habitat um and so when you get to a point where there are, if you have an exceptionally large run and lots and lots and lots of spawners, you get into a position where you have a wave of fish come in, they start building nests, they spawn there, and then the next wave of fish comes in, digs all those nests up, lays more nests on top of them, right? And so only the last batch of fish that spawn there are going to really have any output, right? You had a lot of excess I mean, also oh, they could excavate and destroy each other's nests. Yeah, yeah. And in, in the in, in the trade, they call it nest superimposition. They're just building nests on top of other nests. And the thought is that those you could have harvested a lot of those fish without having any negative impact on the return. But the same thing plays out too in the rearing habitat, especially for those fish, the species that rear in fresh water. Right. So, so if you have way too many. And I struggle with the word the term "too many." I'm already, but, I'm already seeing how where I messed it up. So, if you have a really a really large sockeye run and you have a lot of spawners that are all producing fry that are then migrating to a rearing lake, and the lake has the sort of the scenario that you're describing with the coho a minute ago, you have a tr- you know a, a huge biomass, a huge number of juveniles there. And the per capita food resources then are low, and there's a lot of competition, and you know they, those fish can't all get big, right? So yeah, there's the, the, so that's kind of how salmon are managed in Alaska and elsewhere. They 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 they, they take a lot of a long time series of data where for a given river, um, they observe how many salmon are going in that river to spawn, and then from that given brood year and subsequent years, how many salmon come back. And they so for every spawning run, they calculate how many subsequent returns were produced. And over a long period of time, you can sort of develop this empirical relationship between the number of spawners that you let into a river and the number of salmon that come back later from yeah. those spawners. I and understand now where I was messing. It at up. least in theory, you'll see sort of you know that relationship if you picture a graph with you know the number of spawners on the x-axis. You know, at low numbers of spawners, you're going to get a lot of returns, right? But that levels off eventually. You can, at some point, you can put more spawners into the system, but you don't get back a lot of fish because of competition for nests and competition for food and that sort of thing. So you might be looking at a river thinking, we're going to have, let's just use simple numbers. A hundred fish are going to um, come back up here next year. And we might be able to harvest 
half of all the fish that come up and you're still going to have 100 come back or some such. Yeah, and that's that's a good rule of thumb, actually. Like in, in, in most of Alaska's fisheries, I think over the long term, um, about you know maybe 40 to 60% of the returning adults, and, and these things only spawn once, so they're, they're being harvested before they ever have a chance to spawn. But every, every single year, every single run, you know, about you know, roughly half, give or take, of the population is killed before it has a chance to spawn. Um, but that's sort of a testament to the productivity of these fish because this has been going on, you know, in Alaska for over 100 years in most places, and those fish just keep coming back and coming back. And, they're, you know, they're at, um, you know, populations are, for the most part, doing great, you know. So I'm so happy to hear the salmon are doing all right yeah. generally. I mean, up here at least. Yeah. Yeah. Pacific Northwest is a bit of another story, but Dude, yeah. it's a totally different story. Wasn't there a closure on king fishing to retain the Oh, there's a lot of that going around. Yeah. I mean, last year I remember specifically when we were out at your guys Because they cabin. couldn't tell cuz there's kings up here that belong down there. Yeah, it was something like that. They didn't that. want them get there's so few down there they didn't want whatever ones might happen to be running around up here yeah. getting killed when they might be turning up down there later. That seemed very Am I getting that right? Odd. Well, <laughs> they the sport and commercial seasons were closed for king salmon in southeast Alaska starting in August yep. last year. Um, there are a handful of the, the transboundary rivers in southeast Alaska, like the Stikine and the Taku and the Eunuch, um, rivers that drain from British Columbia into mainland southeast Alaska. Um, the, the king salmon runs in all those rivers are in pretty bad shape right now. And so they close the fisheries in Southeast to, to maximize return. Oh. Yes. Yes. And a lot of those, a lot of those fish feed sort of locally. So, you know, even by the time August came around last year, most of that year spawners were already, or if not all of them already in the river, but I think that they were closing that to pr- preserve, you know, immature fish oh, feeding you. in that, um, sort of coastal Southeast. And that, that alludes to that sort of Canada-U.S. interplay of salmon management. Yeah, there are some, there are some uh, treaties on those rivers, too, I believe. Yeah, like just because it flows out in your country doesn't mean that you can run the show. Yeah, You can run the show when we need to have our fish, to have our fish cross the border and come back yeah. up to where yeah, we are. Yeah, there's a lot of habitat in Canada, yeah. All right, do you have any uh, things that you wanted to wedge in that we didn't get to? Um, no, I had, a, I had a list, but we got to them, yeah. Really? Where's your list? on my head oh you had a mental <laughs> and you guys are good yeah oh, so i'm ready for a taco <laughs> fish taco what kind of tacos we have uh moose but we do have some uh a little bit of halibut and rockfish we could heat up though left over from a couple nights ago no salmon nope man i got very little salmon left in the freezer man i like to have that stuff gone you gotta get it gone man yeah you can sit on a piece of deer meat for a couple years but salmon i like to get it in and out yes yes in same and here. out all right, thanks for joining. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct 
a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.